you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Coming up on Huddle and Flow... And so many of these owners cannot tell you that they don't know what they're looking for. So they, they don't end up hiring the right person. And then when they do hire someone, they don't stick be, behind them because they really weren't their guy. They were the media's guy or they were some search firm's guy. And then when you hit a little bump in the road, they, they, they don't want to stand behind them. So it's, it's a two way street. But I think the first step is really defining what you're looking for. That's next on Huddle and Flow. All right, all right, all right. We're back again for another Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve White with my man, Jim Trotter. Jim, we're here on couple days after the final weekend of the season it's it's coach firings who's going to get hired gm firings who's going to get hired it's something we've talked about since we started this podcast so I, I i know we're pretty revved up for this and we're going to be joined by hall of famer tony dungy in a little bit too who's been consulted by at least one team for his input as well on this process yeah tony you know he, he talks regularly with the league about this thing he's sort of the conscious i think of the nfl that when there are these issues of consequence, particularly as they relate to race in the NFL, Tony's one of the guys that the the powers to be seek out. And and the thing I love about Tony, in his quiet, dignified way, he tells you the truth, man, and he, he doesn't pull punches on it. So uh, I respect that so much because me sometimes I feel like I'm a hammer against glass. I don't have that that um <laughs> I don't have that that grace. Not you, Jim. Oh, yeah. I know I don't have that grace that Tony has to be able to say it in a way that doesn't get folks riled up. But um, so, no, he's he's anytime you can get him. um, It's a worthwhile listen. 
Well, Jim, you know, before we get to Tony in just a couple minutes, let's look at some of these circumstances. So we saw Monday Adam Gase and Doug Marone get fired, as we expected, and uh, Anthony Lynn for the Chargers uh, get fired as well. What's interesting, real quick on that. So somebody sent me a screenshot. I'm not going to mention the media company. Jets part ways with Adam Gase. Jaguars part with Doug Marone. Chargers fire Anthony Lynn. So here, so here we go. Here we go with the media freaking approach. And you could sit there and say what you want. Maybe they just wanted to change up the verb. Well, you know what? You got to you hit the black guy when getting fired. And they, they, they gently part ways with a non-black guy. And here we, we're, we're going to keep hammering the media for this bull stuff because, you know, this, this means a lot. Yeah, I'll say the company's name. It was ESPN. And I'll say it because I used to work there. And I know the people there. And I know they're better than that. So... Um, I think someone just unfortunately made a mistake. And um, I think at times people don't realize just how far um, and how deeply something like that can cut. Words matter. So I'm not throwing the organization under the bus. Like I said, I work there. I know people, many people there, and I know they're good people. And a mistake was just made. But man, it's just a reflection of, you know, how there just appears to be or there is a double standard when it comes to how certain people are covered. <laughs> Look, all three were fired. I mean, that's yeah. the reality. So either that's they're what they'll fired tell you. or they parted ways with all three. It's one or the other. It's not one or the other. So and, and for, yeah, and for folks who think we, we're, we're being hypersensitive, you know what? Go to a homicide and see the mugshot that they put up of the person of color and then look at the mugshot, or I'm sorry, the high school yearbook photo that they put up of the person not of color or the darkening of the skin and stuff like that, and get back to me, you know, when you take the temperature of the situation. Anyway, let's get back. Let's let's get let's address some of these situations real quick before we put on Tony because everyone's talking about the Jags is probably the best situation. Chargers right there with the Jags is the best situation. I, I cannot disagree whatsoever with either of them, but just, just your thoughts and who you think could be a pretty solid fit. And we're just talking about the coaching, the coaching vacancies there. Cause of course, Jacksonville has got a GM opening. Yeah, Steve, I'll say this. I agree with you on the top two teams in terms of um, being the best situations for a coach to step into. I would say to you um, for the obvious reasons, Jacksonville, you have um, draft capital, including the number one pick overall. You've got a bunch of cap space, um, you've got an owner who typically is patient, um, doesn't doesn't meddle a lot, even though, you know, um, uh, Shad Khan said he will be more involved with personnel this year. I don't think it was him saying he's going to be Jerry Jones and tell people who to pick. I think it's more of if there is a disagreement or a big decision that needs to be made, he'll want it run by him first before he just signs off on it. And I think if, if that had been in place before, Jalen Ramsey might still be a Jacksonville Jaguar. Right. Or, you know, Yannick Ndagwe might still be a Jaguar. So um, I think that's smart. You know, in terms of the Chargers, look, that's a roster loaded with talent. And you've got a rookie quarterback right now um, who has shown that he can be one of the best in the league. So you've got an opportunity to try and build out that roster while he is on a rookie contract. And if everyone comes back healthy, you know, it's two years in a row, Derwin James has missed most of the year. And that's an impact player. That That's an all-pro player. Um, there's a lot of talent there. So, And again, I think ownership is willing to, to do whatever needs to be done 
to try and win, knowing that it's still fighting for its place in that market, in the L.A. market. So I think those two, obviously. Um, the other ones, there, there are questions there, you know, and, and you and I have talked about it. There are some big decisions that have to be made when it comes to Atlanta and its personnel at the quarterback position and even wide receiver position. And the same thing in Detroit uh, with Matthew Stafford at the quarterback position. And so um, this is where it comes back to me where it's not just about who you hire as head coach. It's about an organizational vision that has to be shared on all three levels, meaning ownership, front office, and coaching staff. And if it is not, you are likely not going to succeed. And so it's hard for me to say who's the best best fit coach-wise right now without knowing what's the structure going to be in these organizations going forward. Because if they don't marry up, you're going to be right back in this situation again in a couple of years. Yeah, I'll sit there and say this. With, with, with Atlanta, I think of all the jobs, their ownership situation is the best with, with Arthur Blank. And you talk about structure. That's something they always tend to have in the initial phases of a coaching hire. Jim Moore gets hired. They go to the NFC Championship game with Michael Vick. Michael Smith gets hired. Mike Smith, they go, they're in their perennial playoff contender with Thomas Dimitrov by his side. Dan Quinn comes in and replaces Mike Smith. Again, they go to a Super Bowl. There's there's always that initial balance because the structure and the plan is in place. But kind of the link between that over the last two coaches has been Matt Ryan. He's he ain't got a whole, you know, he's got two, three, four years left, maybe. Big contract. You've got to decide what you're gonna do there. And in Detroit, there the ownership has been, you know, and, you know, it's interesting. You talk to people, it's just like they're so used to losing up there, it's hard to get them to break into that positivity cycle. So Again, I think that's a city that's so ripe for winning. Uh, you know, we'll see. You know, I, I would love to see, you know, as crazy as Robert Sala go home and make it happen. You know, the 49ers, D.C., I don't know if he'll get that opportunity. He's going to interview there. Um, but, but like we talk about, Steve, he needs to know what it all is going to look like. Correct. Even if it is offered to him. You know, and I, I always use that analogy, all money ain't good money. But he's got to know what he's stepping into, because that's the one one of the things I took from the recent piece I did with Vance Joseph when he went to the Broncos and him saying, I didn't vet it properly. I didn't realize that the GM um, was going to it ha- was going to not the GM, but the czar, John, John Elway at that time was going to exert that much influence over personnel and who was selected and all of that. And quite frankly, they had gone to a Super Bowl a couple of years earlier. And so he's like, who am I to question? So, so if you're Robert Sala or you're Eric Bieniemy or you're a Pep Hamilton or anyone else, any coach, yeah, Brian Dayball, right? Yep. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You need to make sure you understand what you are stepping into, um, and not just be, ha- excuse me, be happy that you have been offered a head coaching position. Because the reality is, if you step in and you fail, it's not always guaranteed you're going to get a second opportunity. Absolutely. Now let's look at the last two situations and and. And and these to me are like, whoa, okay. So Houston, you've got Deshaun Watson, but you don't have your first two draft picks next year. You're up against salary cap issues. You're probably going to have to let some players go, possibly J.J. Watt. Um, you know, they say they're going to bring in a general manager type who's, who, you know, Jack Easterby's not going to be the main guy. But that you've got to have an understanding that this is going to be a process right there. No ownership has got to be with you on that. And then the Jets, Jim. <laughs> Woody Johnson, right? Woody Johnson was a primary owner. He goes to 
England to be Donald Trump's ambassador to the UK. He's coming back. And we heard his brother, Christopher Johnson, who, who seems very much on the polar opposite in terms of, you know, just the empathy scale of, of things say, Hey, yeah, I'm going to be part of things, but when Woody comes back, he's going to have the final say, you know, I, I just think these are two very, you know, whoever takes these, these jobs better have some security and understand you talk about what you're getting into. And then of course the jets, the Sam Darnold market, you, you've raised that question an awful lot as well. Yeah. I, look, my point with, with the jets is this, it goes back to the same thing. I, I, I keep repeating myself. I know people are tired of hearing it, but the vision has to be shared on all levels, ownership, mm-hmm. front office coaching, and you all have to understand and be genuine in your acceptance that this is how we are going to move forward. This is our plan. This is what we are going to do. And we are not going to stray from it. And if you don't have that, like, you know, we're going to have Tony Dungy on shortly. And one of the things Tony talked about was the, the, the patience that was shown to him when he got to Tampa. Those things need to be understood because if you're going to do it the right way, it could take two years, three years to really get the foundation in place to then take off and be a true perennial contender. If you want the quick fix, then in all likelihood, a year or two later, you're going to find yourself in a lot of trouble. And then what? So that that's all I say to these coaches. Just be careful um, and know what you're getting yourself into. And don't be so hungry for a job that you take any job. And, and that's why I think, again, the Niners model is probably the preeminent model that a lot of these clubs should take, where they get the coaching GM on long-term deals. They let them suffer through some stuff while they're building a roster through the draft. Don't get – don't get fooled by a free agency or the cap and go ahead and build a team in your image and see how things work out. Well, on the note, Jim, let, let, let's bring in a sage. Let's bring in, let's bring in Tony Dungy on that because I'm sure he's got a lot of things uh, to share with us. So on the note, let's bring in the hall of famer, Tony Dungy. All right, Jim, now we're joined by the Hall of Famer, the NBC broadcaster, Super Bowl champion, head coach. The resume is long. The resume on the very top, though, is one of the most respected men, not only in the game, but one of the most respected men that there are. Jim, we're now joined by Tony Dungy. Uh, Tony, thank you so much for joining Jim and I on this important edition of the Huddle and Flow podcast. Thanks for having me, Steve. Always great to be with you guys. Appreciate you, Tony. Steve, let's get it going. Let's get it going. Well, Tony, look, we want to we want to get it started because we are now in the coaching and GM firing and hiring cycle. Um, And we've seen the push from the NFL as an entity right at 345 Park Avenue incentivize and really push these teams to diversify their coaching and general manager situation. But until the individual owners do so. I think we're all in a you know in, in a holding pattern right here. But you've been in you've been involved in part of this process. Your wisdom has been sought by the Texans and some other people. Are you as optimistic as some of the people like Rod Graves from Fritz Pollard or Mike Loxley from National Coaches uh, Minority Coalition about the NFL owners finally stepping up to the plate and diversifying their personnel departments, general manager, and head coaches? 
Well, Steve, I'm optimistic that we're going to give them some good choices. I don't know how the process is going to end up because as we talked uh, before we went on here, every individual owner has to make up his mind, decide what he wants and go after that. And so many of these owners don't really know what they want. They aren't sure. And that, that muddies up the waters. But I think there's some excellent candidates out there. I'm one who I don't subscribe to. There's no pipeline. That, that theory is uh, not good in my book. Tony, how did we get to the point where we had an all-time high of eight minority head coaches down to the point where now we're down to two blacks and three minorities overall? How did we, what happened? Well, I think we had a cycle where we hired some good people. We hired a lot of defensive coaches. And then for some reason, everyone thought that in order to be successful, you have to have a, a young offensive coach. You have to have a quarterback coach, despite the fact that Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll are winning Super Bowls uh, year after year. And because most of the people who coach quarterbacks and offensive coordinators are white, that, that's what led to that. And now we've got a situation where uh, we, we do have some young minority offensive coaches, but We've got to get the owners to understand that they need to be looking for leaders. Leadership is what wins for you. Yeah, Sean McVay is a great offensive coach, but Sean McVay is a leader. Bill Belichick is a leader. He, he's a great coach. He doesn't happen to coach quarterbacks, but he can win Super Bowls. And that's what we've got to get people to understand. How do we do that, Tony? I don't know. Uh, I've been frustrated in, in the times uh, when Commissioner Goodell has had me talk to someone or people just call me and say, you know, I'd like some recommendations. And my first question is, what are you looking for? And you'd be surprised that 80% of the time they can't tell you. And I always go back to, to Dan Rooney, who was my mentor in Pittsburgh. I think he hired three coaches in 50 years because he had a formula. He said, Pittsburgh is a blue collar town. We're cold weather. Uh, we're going to be rough and tumble. So I'm looking for defensive minded coaches and i want a young guy because i want somebody that's going to be here 15 or 20 years and somebody who understands pittsburgh that was his formula so he hires 30 year old chuck knoll and then 25 years later he hires 30 year old bill cower and then 15 years after that he hires 30 year old mike tomlin even though he had bruce arians and dick lebeau and russ grimm and ken wisenhunt on the staff he said yeah those, those are all good people but I know what I want. I know what works for me. And that's what I'm looking for. And so many of these owners cannot tell you that. They don't know what they're looking for. So they, they don't end up hiring the right person. And then when they do hire someone, they don't stick be, behind them because they really weren't their guy. They were the media's guy or they were some search firm's guy. And then when you hit a little bump in the road, they, they, they don't want to stand behind them. So it's, it's a two-way street. But I think the first step is really defining what you're looking for. Tony, I'm glad you brought up search firms. And we know there's another avenue. Because if an owner doesn't know what he's doing, he often relies on a search firm, which very rarely, and if you check the data, have people of color helping them in the search, you know, on that search firm staff. But also they go to the general managers. And that is the one area where a lot of people have expressed optimism because there are so many talented personnel people of color and so they think if they can get a champ kelly or a marvin allen or someone like that a morocco brown in the yeah. general manager seat then that will be a guiding voice or a guiding hand for for the owners so let's start there when you think about the talent in that area and the personnel pipeline 
we get some general managers hired, how much of that could help with the coaching diversity hiring? No question about it, because owners, they do lean on their general managers. They do lean on people in their organization. I was really thrilled. Uh, a young man who played for me in Minnesota, Malik Boyd, interviewed in Houston. Those are steps in the right direction because Malik Boyd is a talented young man. He's been in it a long time. He started out with Denny Green. He knows the game, but he's not a household word. Uh, now that those kind of guys are getting interviewed, that's who we need to get in, involved. No question about it. Tony, what do you hear from your end in terms of the role that the media plays in hiring? Oh, I think the media plays a huge role. And I, I tell our people at NBC all the time, uh, we can really help the process or we can hurt the process because we are the voice. We're what people hear. Um, I think someone did a, a study uh, after the Super Bowl last year, how many times uh, that Eric Bieniemy was mentioned in the five-hour pregame show. And it was like one or two times. No. <laughs> yeah, no. If you watch the whole pregame show leading up to the now he's mentioned during the game when Mahomes is over talking to him, he's on the screen. But in the pregame show, he was very rarely mentioned. Uh and, and that's that's criminal. I mean, because we can have an impact that way. I, I'm with NBC and we've got Tampa Bay and Washington. We're doing the game. I'm gonna talk about Byron Leftwich. I'm gonna talk about Todd Bowles. Somebody has to do that. I saw on social media people talking about, for instance, um, Rams offense coordinator Kevin O'Connell. And, and they were talking about having him interview for the Charger job because he would be great for Justin Herbert. And I said, wait a minute. There's a guy there this year who has played a tremendous role in Justin Herbert's develop as a professional, and that's Pep Hamilton. Why aren't we mentioning his name? So I... I I don't know that you have the answer to this, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we get people in our business to sort of expand their horizons and to stop playing the agent game and the access game and those sorts of things in hopes that that coach or his agent or whoever will take care of me on the back end if I mention this guy and actually do the right thing and start mentioning the people who are truly deserving. Well, so many of us in the broadcasting are like the owners. We don't really know, too. So we hear from the agent. We hear from someone else who says, hey, this guy's doing a really good job. Uh, but there, there, Pep Hamilton's a great example. He came into the league uh, with Andrew Luck, and Pep Hamilton was a rising star, and now we've kind of forgotten about him. Uh, Leslie Frazier's at Buffalo, and yes, we're talking about their offense and, and what they're doing, and they're playing great offense. Brian Dable's doing a tremendous job, but they lost so many guys off that defense, and the second half of the year, their defense is playing great, and you don't hear Leslie Frazier's name mentioned. Here's a guy who has, has done it for years as a defensive coordinator and coached a, a team, head coached the team into the playoffs. Uh, you you wouldn't know that from listening to to our media reports. Yeah, Tony, the one thing, you know, with, with Troy Vincent and, of course, the Black College Football Hall of Fame putting on the annual quarterback summit uh, in Atlanta, I told him, I said, look, we need to get the guys who actually call the games, you know, the Troy Aikmans, the Tony Romos, there. So they can see the Tony Elliott's of the world or the Terry yes. Fontenot's of the world who are in the yeah. audience and mention them because that because they don't know, right? They've got other things that they're working yeah. on. So, so I think that's another avenue – in terms of, of the media construct of this. 
Um, Batonia, now I, I do believe, didn't the Texans bring you in to help consult on, on some of their searches? I've actually talked, I've not been a consultant, but I talked to Cal McNair and we talked about going through the process and what to do. And I basically just told him, Cal, you have to make a decision. What do you want? What do you want your organization to look like? Who do you want leading your team? And then once you decide that, don't worry about what the search firm says. Let the search firm bring some names to you. Uh, but don't worry about the search firm. Don't worry about the media. Don't worry about the fans. You decide what you want. You know, Tony, it's no secret. Um, you're a better man than me, and you have much more patience and grace than I do. I got to ask you, I know you, you, you have said you support this initiative that the league started in terms of incentivizing or rewarding teams for developing minority candidates. I, on the other hand, have an issue with it from the standpoint of, I believe that if you have to incentivize something for people to do what's right, then it's already wrong. And so from my standpoint, I had one owner even say to me, why do I want to develop a guy, invest my resources, my time, my money, everything else to make this person the best that he can be in this position just for someone else to come in and take him away? So I'm curious your thoughts for why you you supporter behind this initiative well I, I was not supportive of the original initiative that Correct. said the team that hires someone receives prep because i do think that rewards you for doing the right thing i was behind this one because of the perception that the pipeline is what we need so i felt like if we do this then there will be some incentive for me when i'm hiring at the very bottom of the totem pole uh, when I'm hiring that quality control offensive coach who's going to be doing the grunt work for four or five years, rather than hire my nephew or my son, now maybe because I'm going to get a draft choice five years later, I'll hire someone who doesn't look like me. And that now I can get rewarded five years later for, for doing something that is out of the ordinary. So I, I think that can help in, in the in the long term. And, and that's I'm, why I was for it. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you for a minute, but do owners really even care that much about a mid-round draft pick at best? Uh, they do. They do. Yeah, because they, they look at that as capital, as, as quality. So uh, if I come in and if I'm the head coach and I say, hey, uh, Jim Trotter's nephew uh wants a job and he's going to be my quality control coach most of the time the owner is going to say that's fine that's not a big deal go ahead and do it but if now i can say hey you know what i'm going to hire the best person and you know what we might get a we might get a draft choice down the road for it um let's do the right thing i think there will be some incentive that way tony let's let's just let's kind of go kind of go through situation because jim always makes a point you know, he tells the story of his father playing dominoes that not all money is good money. And so not all jobs are good jobs. So let's, let's kind of keep it in the, in the coaching thing. And let's look at the circumstances because you have Atlanta and Detroit, right? So you have an opportunity to go coach teams with established quarterbacks, but ownership is not saying you have to keep them like Matthew Stafford and Matt Ryan. What would be enticing about those two situations? 
Well, you have to look at that and see if you think you're very close to winning there because it's going to be a short window with those two quarterbacks. Now, can I do it? Can I come in, make a, a splash? Can we put enough around them to win right away? Uh, those are tough, though, as opposed to somewhere like Jacksonville where you say, I've got a chance to draft. I've got extra draft choices. I've got money uh, in the salary cap I can build. And we have very low expectations. Uh, and we'll, we'll build for the future. Houston is kind of in the middle. You've got the franchise quarterback, but you don't have a lot of other weapons and you don't have a lot of other choices. So how much can I build around Deshaun Watson? Um, so that, that's what you have to think about. But for most of us, an opportunity is better than no opportunity. You always feel like you're going to make it work. I, I remember when I went to Tampa in 1996, everybody told me, don't go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deathbed for quarterback. You don't have anything in place. They're not going to spend money. And you know what I said? Hey, this might be my only shot. So let me take it, and I'm I'm going to do it. And and that's that's the way you feel. You you bet on yourself. You feel like, hey, I, I can get this done. And you started. Was it on five there? <laughs> yes, we did. But you know what? We had a long term plan. Rich McKay was tremendous. We had a young quarterback at that time, Trent Dilfer. He was the sixth pick in the draft. He was unproven, and we said, you know, we've got to go. We're going to go two years with Trent. It doesn't matter how many games we win. We have to see if he's going to play. Now, we had a lot of young defensive talent. Hey, we're going to build around that, and we're going to win in the long run. So that's the way we set out to do it. Well, well, we did that. Three years later, we're a perennial playoff team, but then that wasn't good enough. Well, you know, we should be in the Super Bowl. We haven't won the big one. We can't get over the hump. So things change. But uh, – at one time there, 10 wins and a playoff season would have seemed like, hey, that's fantastic. Can you take us behind the curtain and, and express to us or explain to us what are the things that no matter how much you've prepared for that job, once you get in it, there just was no preparing for. You have to go through it. There, there are things that come up that you could never expect, and you're always going to be learning on the fly. I'm on the job three days and trying to put my staff together, making phone calls. And a guy knocks on my door and says, coach, we're putting the itineraries together. What hotels do you want to stay at? Uh, what uh, airlines are we going to charter? <laughs> it's a charter airline. I'm trying to get a staff. Together. What are you talking about? <laughs> Those are the things that come up that, you know, that happen over and over and over again. There, hey, there's a, a fire over here that you've got to put out. Uh, you had no idea it was even on, on the radar. Uh, and so you learn and you grow and you work your way through things, but uh, you can never be prepared for everything. I was fortunate. I had a great general manager in Rich McKay. As you said, patience, we're walking through things. Our first draft, I remember Rich telling me, hey, the night before the draft, he said, we've got to get ready because I promise you in the second round, Bobby Beth is going to call, ask for our draft choice when we're on the clock and give us next year's number one. We've got to make a decision. Are we going to do that? Or are, we know we need players. We know there's going to be a guy there we like, but can we be patient and wait a year? And sure enough, we're on the clock, and here's a phone call, and it's Bobby Beathard calling. <laughs> and we ended up trading our second-round pick. Even though we needed talent, we traded it. Well, the next year, we end up being high in the first round with extra picks. We draft Warwick Dunn, Riddell Anthony, Rondé Barber, and we get it going a year later, 
by, by being patient. But that's something that Rich walked me through. I would have never uh, had that thought even in mind as my first year as a head coach. How much time is there actually for a head coach to actually coach or teach in today's game because of all those outside things that come at you? The most enjoyable time I ever had coaching was in uh, 1989, 90, and 91. I was coaching the Kansas City Chiefs defensive backs. I had eight guys, four of them in the Pro Bowl, and they just worked like crazy. And that was our group. That was our little family. And I felt like I coached. I helped them grow as, as men, and we had a unit. Then you move up. You're a defensive coordinator. You've got more things on your plate. You're a head coach. You are not coaching then. You're you're coaching the staff and coaching the coaches and going back and forth with the owner and the GM. And you're trying to be uh, an administrator more so than a coach. You don't get to practice your trade as much, no question. Tony, with that, I mean, people who've coached for you, know you, said you were able to always maintain a work-life balance. What, what, what about that theory and how rewarding was that? I mean, what was the payoff? I, I was really blessed, Steve, to start out with Chuck Knoll. And uh, the very first meeting I was ever in as a player with Coach Knoll, the first thing he said to us was, welcome to the National Football League. You're getting paid to play football. It's your job. It's your profession. But you can't make football your whole life. And he mm-hmm. lived that out. He taught us that. He lived it. He, he, we had family Saturday where you brought your kids to practice on Saturday for special teams. Uh, he gave us time off in the off season. He got us home at night and he lived that out. I went to work for Marty Schottheimer for three years after that. Great coach, great man. I love Marty. We stayed till three o'clock in the morning and didn't accomplish anything more. Marty was very detailed on top of everything. I understood that it was crazy. Then I went and worked four years for Denny Green. Just He was just like Chuck. And I saw you could win and you could do it well if you were organized and efficient. And that's what I tried to be. And so for my 13 years as a head coach, I wanted my staff, I wanted my players to understand there's life, there's more than just football. We can win, we can be efficient, and we can still have a family life. Uh, when I brought Family Saturday to the Colts, my quarterback was a perfectionist. And for him, Saturdays was how can we run 100 plays that didn't get run perfectly on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? We've got to review them on Saturday. I said, Peyton, we can review them, but Marvin's going to have his son out there running routes with his, <laughs> and his, his shoulder. And we're going to do this the way we're going to do it. And so we had to kind of battle that out, but we end up going to a Super Bowl and winning with Family Saturday. You know what? That, that's a perfect segue into where we want to go to the Hall of Fame coming up, your quarterback. Just your thoughts on on Peyton and your time with him. And I know you've spoken about him ad nauseum, but is there anything that that maybe you haven't shared that a different side we haven't seen yet regarding that relationship? No, I tell you, to me, he defines a Hall of Famer. Uh, great talent, uh, hard worker, wanted his teammates to be the best they could be, just did everything the right way. And whatever I said as a coach, he exemplified that in the locker room and brought it out. He, he was just tremendous. And, uh, you know, there's no question he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, another guy um, who was a semifinalist is Reggie Wayne. You know, we know Marvin Harrison, the counterpart, already was in. Um, a lot of wide receivers once again. we got Megatron, guys like Torrey Holt. But why, why should Reggie get in the Hall? And if it's not this year, you know, eventually get in. 
he should get in. He's another Hall of Famer. And I know a lot of people said, well, gosh, he benefited from having Peyton Manning. He benefited from having Marvin Harrison get double coverage. So, yeah, it's going to be easy to put up those numbers. Well, for six or seven years after that, when he didn't have Peyton Manning, he didn't have Marvin Harrison, he put up those kind of numbers as the number one receiver, uh, just a hard worker, uh, total dedication. And uh, I remember um, I got there his second year, and he came into my office and said, you know, I was the number one draft choice, but I don't have Peyton's confidence. I've got to get Peyton's confidence like Marvin. And he worked and worked and worked and worked and became a 100-catch a, a guy. So um, I just – I have a real soft spot in my heart for Reggie, and I hope he gets in. You know, Tony, I wanted to ask you about a funny story I've heard, and maybe you can confirm it, that people don't realize great players – I mean, they have egos you got to massage as a coach. you got to You got to deal with. And there was a practice one time, I think, at training camp where I guess in the first practice, Marvin didn't get the ball as much as he wanted. And I guess he was like, I want to be traded. Or this is the way I've heard the story. I want to be traded. I want out, whatever, whatever. And then it got to Peyton. And in that afternoon practice, every time Marvin lined up, Peyton threw the ball at him, you know, to, to placate Marvin. Is that a true story? I think that happened before I got there, but I, I could see that happening. And, you know, Peyton had to massage that because every, every week it would be that way. Hey, Marvin has a huge game. Reggie's not feeling it. Dallas Clark's not feeling it. I remember we opened a game. Uh, we were playing the Green Bay Packers, and they blitzed a lot. And Tom Moore, our offensive coordinator, said, hey, if they blitz, they can't cover our guys one-on-one. -on -one. We're going to throw every down if they blitz. And by every down, I thought he meant seven out of ten. He threw every down. The first 24 plays of the game were passes. Edger and James were picking up linebackers, you know, pass blocking, didn't touch the ball one time. And I remember looking at him in the middle of the second quarter, and I said, are you having fun? He said, you can put a guard back here. And I had to go to Peyton and say, you know what, we got to get Edge the ball a little bit. So if Tom keeps calling passes, throw one to him, you know. But, uh, yeah, you'd have those situations. They'd be funny laughing, and we can look back now, but, yeah, definitely serious, serious conversation. Tony, I'm glad you brought up Edger and James because, of course, he's part of the class of 2020. So there's two two guys you coached who are in the hall. We talked about Reggie. He could be in. You got two more on defense in Mathis and Freeney. To me, you know, as a coach, sit there and say, I may have five guys in Canton that I coach. I mean, how do you sit there? I mean, I'm sure in the moment you recognized the talent, but you as, as a Hall of Famer, the reverence of being a Hall of Famer to say, wow, I may have five guys join me in Canton. What is that? I mean, that, that's got to be a, a heck of a thought process there. No, it's pretty spectacular. And, again, I go back to – to my boss, Chuck Noel, and, and he's sitting there with 10 guys, 10 players <laughs> yeah. in the hall. And then I had the, the blessing of having Warren Sapp and Derek Brooks and Rondé Barber right. and John Lynch who are on the list. And then the guys that you mentioned in Indiana. So uh, I feel, number one, fortunate and blessed. But number two, I, I think it goes back to kind of what we were talking about at the beginning. Having a philosophy, having a general manager that you could communicate with, having a scouting department. I remember one of the very first conversations I had with Bill Polian. Hey, what do we want in this defense? And it, it really, I said, Bill, you got to go back to Buffalo and those guys, Cornelius Bennett and, and that group, Daryl Talley, speed, striking ability. That's what we want. So 
Dwight Freeney and Robert Mathis, they're looking eyeball to eyeball at Bill Polian. And he said, are you sure they're big enough? Trust me, they're big enough. You know, the thing I love about um, those two is that Freeney comes in as the first round pick and, and the big name and all of that. Um, Robert comes in from HBCU mid rounds and people don't pay a lot of attention to him. And I think in some ways that drove him because when he played with Freeney, they fed off each other. And when Dwight left, I remember Robert saying to me, all those people who said Dwight made me, I'm going to show him. And he went out and put up even, even higher numbers after Dwight left that kind of, when you guys were scouting players, do you look for their mindset as much as just their physical ability to know what drives them and motivates them? Even more so, the mindset. You know, Peyton Manning, he had that's what drove him, and that's what made him great. Robert had that's just what you're talking about. And that's where you have to trust your system and trust your eyes and everything. Robert Mathis had the best highlight film I've ever seen other than Barry Sanders. Barry Sanders is the only other player. Robert Mathis made every tackle on kickoff team. He'd run across the field, you know, not only sack the quarterback, chase people down 30 yards downfield. It was incredible. But then everybody said, oh, well, it's, you know, it's Alabama A&M and it's not high quality competition and it's this and it's that. I said, I don't care. You're chasing people and you're making those plays and you're running down on kickoff and and so in the AFC championship game we're playing the New England Patriots trying to go to the Super Bowl we're up 38-34 he goes down makes the tackle on the kickoff and then has to stay in and try to sack Tom Brady but that was his mindset you know that that Alabama A&M mentality if we got to get it done I'm going to do it and that's what you loved and that's what we wanted our scouts to find yeah I, you can show me a guy who can bench press 500 pounds. That's great. But give me that Robert Mathis mentality and we're going to win a lot of games. Mm. See, Tony, you know, and you and you and Bill took a page out of Bill Nunn's playbook and you mind the HBCUs because yeah. one of our Howard Bison brethren, Antoine Bethay, this was a yeah. guy you took. He was a, a collegiate corner at Howard. And, and I remember you telling the story, he said, no, he's going to be a safety for us yeah. and it's going to work in the scheme. What did you see in him? And, and what about his career? Because, you know, one of these days he's going to join Robert in the Black College Football Hall of Fame. He was another guy. He played corner and covered and did things, but he made tackles. He ran around. You saw him. He was a leader. And he stepped in from Howard University to the starting free safety for the Indianapolis Colts like that. Uh, as a rookie, there was no adjustment period. And again, that's what it's almost like the no pipeline argument when they talk about, well, level of competition and this and that winners win, leaders lead, players play. You can see it if, if you know what you're looking for. All right, coach, before we let before we let you get out of here, we got to have a little fun with you. I know you're catching grief about your rankings of your top five quarterbacks. and You're not including Tom Brady. Please explain yourself. <laughs> I, I started I started that by saying, first of all, you can't compare this guy's better than this guy in that era. Otto Graham, how do we know Otto Graham's not the greatest of ever? I said, but so I'm not going to try to rank them who's the best. Here's what I'm going to rank them. Who was the toughest for us to prepare against and play against? Tom Brady was great. And if you want to talk about longevity, and Tom and I have laughed about this since, by the way. If you want to talk about longevity and Super Bowl rings and all that, yeah, you've got to put him first. But John Elway, you could do everything right 
and he would break it down, scramble around, throw cross field 70 yards. Um, that mobility, big difference. Steve Young, the same way. You couldn't play certain coverages against Steve Young because he could take off and go 70 yards like Lamar Jackson. So the Aaron Rodgers, those guys that, that run around, that move, that extend plays, it's always going to be tougher than that. If Tom Brady, as great as he is, if I can rush the passer with Robert Mathis and Dwight Freeney and I don't have to blitz and I can cover with seven guys, I can get to Tom Brady and I can win. But those same guys might not get John Elway down. Now, my second caveat, I have to put Peyton Manning first because I, I work with him. So he's <laughs> never going to – Tom Brady is never going to be ahead of Peyton Manning. So already you're at number four. All right, that's the best you can be, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey of, of like of today's quarterbacks, some of those skill sets you just said, would a Josh Allen or uh, Patrick Mahomes, I mean, are those ty- the types of guys who would just cause you nightmares as a defensive coach to prep for? Absolutely. Uh, I watched Russell Wilson in the Rose Bowl. My son was playing for Oregon. And I remember saying, man, this guy is special. And, of course, uh, every, well, he's only 5'11", and he's this and that. Uh, but you, you see special like that and guys who can move around and create things and keep plays going and compete, uh, they're going to give you you problems. Josh Allen is playing tremendous football right now. Patrick Mahomes is, has done things that we coached and said not to do for years, and now it's just normal. Uh, yeah, you can do that. You can run left and throw back to the right because uh, he, he's redefined the game. So, yeah, if I, I had my rankings now – I don't know where Tom and Peyton would be. They might be down a notch because some of these guys are doing things we hadn't thought about doing. Tony, how much do you miss coaching? I miss the uh, day-to-day. I miss being there with the guys. I miss trying to get everybody on the same page, going after a goal that uh, you you got 50 guys and and 20 coaches that that you're trying for the same thing. I think we've made it into a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, 12-month-a-year job, which I don't think it has to be. Uh, but I, I don't miss that schedule. I don't miss uh, all the things that go in the off season with it. Uh, I, I can remember when I first started coaching, we had 10 weeks off in, in the off season and you, you got to recharge your batteries and coach Noel made sure that we had family time to do that. I don't know if you can do that anymore. And, and that is why I, I wasn't in a hurry to get back into coaching when people were asking me about it. Was it, was there ever a point there though, where, the itch kind of got strong and you you seriously thought about it? Only one time did I seriously think about it. Martin Mayhew called me. He was the general manager of the, the Lions Detroit. at the time. He was asking about Jim Caldwell. And he said, I've got I owe it to the Fords just to ask you if you would if you would come back. Well, I grew up in that area. The Lions were my dad's favorite team. They were my favorite team growing up. I had Martin played for me all of that. And my dad had passed away. And I told Martin, I said, if my dad was still alive, I, I might take this job, but uh, I will think about it overnight. <laughs> and so I wow. did and I called him back the next day. And I said, as much as I'd like to, it, it's, it's not the right time, but that's the only one I was close on. I know he wanted you badly because he, he yeah. was willing to give up anything to get you there. So <laughs> he was, he was trying. Hey, Tom, before I know Steve may have one more for you, but I wanted to get you on this. Um, when we talk about the significance of race and knowing you were the first um, African-American to win the Super Bowl as a coach. This year, I remember Steve and I were doing a show and Doug Williams was on. it. I think it was week two or week three. And Doug said to us, you know, there are like four games, four or five games 
where the starting quarterbacks are each black and no one is really talking about it. And I wonder from your standpoint, have we reached the point where race is no longer a significant factor in the quarterback position? I think we have. I think we have reached that as I'm sitting there broadcasting and we're talking about Patrick Mahomes and Russell Wilson and Lamar Jackson. And it's not even, oh my goodness. Yeah. These guys are, look what they're doing. It's like, this is the new quarterback position. And I I think we have gotten beyond that. I remember 1976, I was a senior in college. I'm quarterback in the university of Minnesota. We're playing the university of Washington. Warren Moon's uh, quarterback in the Huskies. He's leading the Pac-10 in passing. I'm leading the Big Ten in passing. Neither one of us got drafted. They tell me my skill set, I need to be a defensive back. Warren, your skill set, maybe it's going to be better in Canada. That doesn't happen now. Uh, And and we have made significant progress there. Hopefully, the front office and the coaching will catch up. When When you go back to that moment with you and Warren in that game, and then when you're coming out, did you ever think we would get to this moment as it relates to that position? I watched Warren Moon on the other sideline. I said, man, this guy is great. And then he became the most valuable player in the Rose Bowl. So it wasn't like he was an unknown quantity. Uh, and, and when he didn't get drafted, that that shook me because I, I you could see how good he was. So that, that put some doubt in my mind. Uh, and it took a while, but uh, fortunately we made it. Was there a moment that you can reflect on in the last few years, if it was the last few years, where you think we got to that point where it was not a significant factor? You know, I, I saw it in 99 when I was coaching. And it was, if you remember, Keely Smith, Donovan McNabb, Dante Culpepper. And we're talking about who's better. Well, who should be picked first? And it was Tim Couch and Cade McNown and all the talk was just and and Danny Green said, well, I think Culpepper is the best of all of these guys. And it was a conversation had nothing to do with race. And that's when I first saw it. And then when you saw uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the draft and Kansas City trades up to get Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. And that's when I, I said, man, we are we're there now. We're 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 competing. We're moving up to take these black quarterbacks. And it was really, really made my heart feel good. Yeah, and you're you're seeing some of the coaching adjust to some of the skill set issues that people before said were were prohibitive. That's that's the difference. That's Mm -hmm. the difference. Rather than say, well, Tony, your skill set doesn't fit us. Warren Moon, your skill set doesn't fit us. No, I'm going to change my offense to fit Kyler Murray. Uh, I'm going to take Russell Wilson, and I'm going to adjust my offense around him. Uh, that's good coaching, and that's what we're doing now. Tony, one thing before we got here, and, and I'll just never forget this a couple of years ago when you put Donnie Shell um, into the Black College Football Hall of Fame, and he talked about how much you meant to him. And, and I know you guys are tight. Donnie finally gets in, deservedly, well overdue into the, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But besides Donnie, what was it like being around all of those great defensive players with the steel curtain and all those guys in Pittsburgh, but also being with a club that really valued HBCUs and really valued its its black players in a way where I remember you said Rooney came up to you and said, Tony, maybe you're not a great player, but I think you're going to be a hell of a coach. Why don't you take that path? I mean, where they recognized it and they didn't let your skin color become a speed bump, if not a complete stone wall. 
No, that, it was a great, great experience. And, and I can tell you, coming from the north, I, I heard of Grambling and I heard of Tennessee State, but hadn't really seen those guys play. And to sit there in the, after the evening meetings and hear Glenn Edwards and Mel Blunt and those guys talk about games that they had where, hey, I'm covering Charlie Joyner and James Harris is throwing the ball and we can't stop him. And, you know, Coach Gaither and, and Big John Merritt and – and just saying, wow, and having Frank Lewis talk about Eddie Robinson coaching him. And then you man, it's a shame Eddie Robinson didn't get to coach in the NFL. It's a shame Jake Gaither didn't get to coach in the NFL. Right. Um, and, and I remember feeling that. And that those guys were special. They were unique. And that's what the Steelers were built around. And, and you felt that when you got there. And uh, I remember when I first started coaching, and uh, another general manager from another team uh, saw me on the road. Uh, we're scouting. And he said, you know what? If you want to advance in this business, you need to shave your beard because you look like a player. You don't look like a coach. And I went back and I, I asked Dan Rooney. I said, this is what this guy told me. And if that's what you want, uh, you know, that's what I want to do. And Dan looked at me right now. He said, around here, we want you to be who you are. Wow. And that was powerful that stayed with me the rest of my life wow that is big that's why dan's one of the reasons dan's in the hall of fame yep well tony we can't thank you enough it's an important discussion it was a fun discussion uh and let's hope that eventually this COVID goes away and at some point if not before then we can all reconvene in canton and have a really good time in in the summer we need to do that would love to but thanks for having me on Tony, we appreciate it, man. Always class, and and um, we appreciate your insight um, and all that you do behind the scenes. I know, I know, you're not a, a big chest thumper on on what you do, but you know, you're out there leading this fight in your own way, and we appreciate. I, I definitely appreciate that. I know Steve does as well. Thank you, and thanks for what you guys do too. It's important. Steve, you know, I always enjoy just um, talking with Tony. As I say, he he sort of grounds you, you know, because sometimes I can get worked up a little bit and um, I, I start coming at things a little too direct sometimes. And and Tony just always makes me pause and just say, it's like he's saying to me, I'm not asking you to change your mind. I'm just asking you to maybe change your approach a little bit, you know, and and just slow down just like with the hiring process, slow down, you know? And um, I appreciate that about him as well as his willingness to continue the fight, to try and level the playing field when it comes to minority coaches and, and front office people. Look, and Tony was a guy who who led by example, right? We don't always see black head coaches or black general managers surround themselves with staff's diversity. Tony Dungy did. Just look at some of the people from his his coaching tree – you know, Jim Caldwell, Lovey Smith, Mike Tomlin, Leslie Frazier, um, Herm Edwards. You know, he also had guys like Rod Marinelli and Frank Reich on his staff, just to name a few. I mean, so he was somebody who was about it, and he, he, he hired good people, but he also taught them lessons because they're all very similar in their approaches on how they coach. They're unrelenting, but they're not necessarily in-your-face do things my way, they get their point across in a certain way, which has been effective. They treat you like men, right. you know? 
They treat you like men. They talk to you like men. They treat you like men. Look, here's what's being asked of you. Um, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to do it or you're not. If you do, great. If you don't, there are consequences. There's no need to curse someone outside of their name. You know, there's no need to make threats. It's like, this is the reality. Um, do your job, you know? And, but it goes even beyond football. I mean, they're just, when you talk life with them, like when you talk with Jim Caldwell about his experiences outside of football, you know, and you're just, I'll speak for myself. I'm just blown away when you think about all of the things that he's done outside of football. And I won't get into it here because maybe he doesn't want his private business out there. But just the 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 business ventures that he's gotten into, the way he approaches life, the books that he reads to try and better himself, those sorts of things. Man, you come away feeling sort of deficient, you know, like I'm not doing enough. I, I got to start reading some more books or I have to get involved with X, Y or Z. It's just but um, but I, I, I really appreciate those moments with him. That's excellent. Well, you know, Jim, we know he's in the Hall of Fame. We talked about Peyton Manning being uh, a likely member of the 15 finalists. And later today on NFL Network, Jim, myself, and Mike Silver, we are going to unveil the 15 finalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2021. Think Peyton's got a shot? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I couldn't even hold a straight face on that, man. I couldn't even hold a straight face on that. He'll be good, but I mean, we're looking forward to the show because I mean, there's so many good semifinalists. You know, people are going to argue who should go in. We got a lot of first timers, you know, who are semifinalists like Megatron and Jared Allen and Charles Woodson. Let me just say this: one of the people who will be on that list come Tuesday is going to be a guest on our show come Thursday. How's that for you? Right there, you're going to leave it right there. I'm going to leave it right there. And all I'm going to say to you is, you don't want to miss it with that guest. No, no. This guest is for real. Ooh, that's a good tease. Because there's a lot of good, there's a lot of good interviews on that, you know, potentially on that final 15. All right. So so don't miss the Hull and Flow on Thursday. We're coming to a special edition, a Hall of Fame edition, uh, where it will be kept real. We can we can certainly say that. All right, Jim. Another great show. We want to give our thanks to Tony Dungy, to our producer Thomas Warren on the ones and the twos behind the scenes. My guy Jim Trotter take us home all right everybody we appreciate you listening we appreciate you subscribing leaving us comments letting us know what you think of the show what you think of us our guests what you want to hear we encourage you to do more of that that way we can give you more of what you're funking for right on right on with that jim all right We are the Howard Mob. This is the Hold On Flow podcast, and we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. You know that feeling when you walk into your home? Take a deep breath. 
<sighs> and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.